Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, 6 o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today we're delighted to welcome along artist, filmmaker and art therapist, Tony Gamage. Really pleased that you could join us today, Tony. Welcome. Well, thank you. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, hi, Tony. Very pleased to meet you. Thanks for coming along to talk with us uh, today. How did you get interested in the idea of art as therapy? What in your life led you up to this, this point? <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a, that's a good question. Uh, I think, I mean, I've been making art, I've been an artist all my life, really, uh, certainly all my adult life. And I think I rather naively didn't realise that all the artwork I was making pointed to, you know, early experiences and early trauma. I kind of, I rather naively thought it was political or whatever. Um, now I look back on it, it's, it sort of seems blindingly obvious that actually it does relate to kind of particularly early life um which is uh, kind of sent to boarding school from the age of seven um and so kind of yeah i think there was a sort of aspect of my artwork which has always been trying to make sense of that um however unconsciously yeah and i think eventually i kind of i slightly caught up um, and realised that the work that I was doing did have an, a therapeutic or a sort of, a sort of sense-making aspect to it. Um, and I think, you know, I used to teach art, but it would never quite satisfied me. But I think, you know, I, there, it's that thing of becoming a therapist to address your own wounds, as it were. It's sort of fairly classic. So, yeah. So you found an activity really which met your needs and was also pretty nourishing for you. I, yeah, I, I, cause I, in, nourishing, I'm not sure I'd word you the word. I mean, you might, if you look at my artwork, you wouldn't necessarily describe it as nourishing. Uh, there was some, it was, I was able to address some very difficult and, um, sort of a lot of my work dealt with self-violence. Um, so you can see why it doesn't feel nourishing, but it was, um, and it, again, as I say, it's just a way to process something uh, on a, on a totally different level to, to sort of conscious mind. Um, and it's just, and it's the story making aspect of art making, which I think has always been. I've always been interested in, but again, it's taken me quite some number of years to realise that. Yeah. What do you mean by the uh, the story making? Because don't forget, you're talking to, in my case, at any rate, a non-artist who doesn't fully understand the process. Well. As I say, I wouldn't have realised at the beginning that my all of my artwork is, was telling a story. Um, and the, the, when I say story making, it's because it's not just telling it with words. You're actually making the objects or making the, the paintings or whatever, the images. 
And so it, it comes from a slightly different place than the kind of rational mind. Um, so it's got, I call embodied storytelling or story making. Um, so I think particularly as I started to sort of brought my artwork went from painting, I used to be a painter into more installation and then filmmaking. It was the stories that I was interested in um, and, you know, both my own story, but it was when I started making films with other people, you know, in prisons, etc., that um, I realised the potential for that and my interest, my passion. Yeah, yeah. And there's a real overlap there with therapies, the talking therapies, isn't there? Or certainly for a lot of models of therapy, there is, um, even if it's not an explicit intent, there is that end product of the patient being unable to to develop a coherent narrative of, of their lives and make sense of, make meaning of their experiences and how it's affected them. And I think some models emphasise that more than others, but you can see how there's a um, a resonance with the artistic work that, or certainly the sort of work, artistic work that you're doing, um, where there is a movement, isn't there, through it? Yeah, and I think, you know, in terms of my training in art therapy, I don't think stories were ever mentioned. Uh, it, it was all about process, um, but not so much story. So, again, it was something I found uh, much later. Uh, or I sort of I, I realized that that was what my sort of what my interest was just seeing everything through the lens of narrative so again I'm, I'm coming from the position of being rather naive about everything um, does completion uh, come into this at all do you get satisfaction um, from getting to the end position, the finished object, or perhaps that never really happens. Do you mean in my work or in um, other people's work or um, both? <laughs> your, your work. <laughs> in my work. You're right, it never really happens. I mean, I've done lots, of, I've done about three or four films about my experiences of boarding school. And I'm, it's, I'm sort of the last one I made I'm happy with, and I think it's it's finished, which is, you know, I, I, over a period of 10 years I've been making these. But there's lots more I could say, um, but it's a kind of pond I'm slowly, fairly reluctant to go back into, but I probably will at some point because there's, there's lots of different aspects of it that I haven't dealt with or looked at. Uh, in terms of resolution, no, it doesn't really resolve anything particularly, not that I'm I wasn't, I'm not doing it to resolve something, um, but it's, there's something about, again, it's that making sense of something and you can only do that through the process um, and the sort of the making of the characters the, and then animating them and then editing it and adding sound and it just, it, it's, um, it's another way to process an experience and, and, and it might not be exactly what happened. It doesn't really matter. I'm not worried about whether it's, you know, it's factually true or not. Um, but it's trying to touch on an experience and 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 communicate it as well. I think that's a very important aspect of it. And there's always more people you can communicate it to. to yeah. So 
actually, I think that's a really good description of you know the process of working through something which which we use across the whole spectrum of psychotherapy, uh, of proper psychotherapy. Isn't it? Um, anyway, to to move on a bit, I understand that you work a lot with animation, mainly with animation. Why do you find that so powerful? Um, I think, well, I've, I've touched on this in, in a way in that, in an, well, animation encompasses lots of different art forms. Uh, so I don't know, maybe it's worth telling uh, people what animation is, stop frame animation. So, for instance, you might make a, an object, a puppet, um, and then animation is a process of photographing the puppet, moving it a little bit then taking another photograph, moving it a little bit, taking another photograph, and then the software on the computer joins it all together and it gives the illusion that the, the object's moving. Um, so it brings the object to life. So for starters, it's a, it's a magical medium. And when you show people, uh, when, when you show people how to do it for the first time, there's a, you get, people get a sense of magic. They go, oh my God. And it's so simple. So it's, it's, it's mind numbingly simple, um, the process. It sounds complicated, but it's not. Um, but there's so many different, I mean, the great thing in, in terms of prisons, the great thing about it is that it's, it's, it's a competent, you're not filming people, you're filming things, you're animating things. They have to make them. So they have to make them with their hands. Um, so as I said before, there's, um, a process of a kind of embodiment. Um, so they're not, it's not like um, if they're telling their story, and many people use this medium to tell their story. Um, so it's not like an assessment or an interview or a court report or something like that. Um, it, it's, it's, it's from the ground up um, and people can, you know, I offer the chance for people to tell their story in their own way um, and tell what story they want to tell. Um, I'm not asking, I'm not saying tell a story of your life or your uh, offence or your early life or anything like that. I give people choice. Uh, so there's a great, and I, I make people director of their film. So you're the director. I'm just here to help you. Um, you're the director, you're in control. And that's quite a novelty for a lot of people, particularly in prison, um, who have very little, as you both know, they have very little um, autonomy and control and say in their story. Um, it's, yeah, I've, I've found it to be very powerful, very emotive in a surprising way. You can think, think of animation as being something like Wallace and Gromit or something like that, which is, you know, it's kind of more humorous. It's got humor as well. Um, things are always falling apart, heads are always falling off, you know, what things like that. Puppets are always falling down or something like that. There's a kind of, there is a slapstick quality. Um, but it, it, it's, and I wouldn't have known this until I did it, that it's incredibly emotive medium. And people make, you know, people who are not emotional make incredibly emotional films. Um, people who wouldn't know what an emotion is, you know, you know, generally, except rage, maybe. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a really powerful medium so it's, and it doesn't tend to trigger people. Um, I've noticed, again, I've noticed, 
Um, people can make incredibly poignant. I've made. I've had people make films about sexual abuse, um, finding their mum dead from a heroin overdose, all sorts of things. You know, all sorts of as you can imagine, um, and it doesn't seem to send them off into a tailspin. You know, it, it people can. And I can explain more about the kind of the process of it, which helps with that, you know, perhaps um, a bit later. But, you know, it's it, it seems to, you know, animation. And I didn't know this when I started. You know, I, I didn't know much about trauma theory when I started. Um, it's, you know, I've, I've been doing this for like the last 10 or 12 years. Um, and I've sort of, as I've sort of become more familiar with trauma theory, I found that animation just has a real kind of, there's a real sort of look-alike in, in, in many of the things. Well, so as I can't unpack that more, but um, yeah, sorry. So no, sorry, Tony. I thought you'd finished, and I, I, as you were talking, I was reminded of there's a little clip of you know Andrew Huberman from Huberman Lab talking about the role of eye movements in the treatment of trauma and how if we are moving if our eyes are moving it, it signals to our brains that we are moving through as if we're moving through space um, and actually that can, that what that does is suppresses the amygdala um, and enables us to engage with something because it's as if we're directly approaching the thing that we're threatened by or frightened of and so that's he suggests that that's what's effective about EMDR, that eye movement allows us to approach in our narrative something that's that's traumatized, potentially traumatized or has been traumatizing for us. And I'm wondering if there's a link there with what you're doing in animation, because there's that sense of motion and movement in the work and whether that that plays into that that amygdala suppression in order to help people tell their stories. I think so. Yeah, I, I, I think that I, I don't I'm not a great expert on EMDR, um, but, you, you know, the, the process is it, it's incredibly slowed down. You know, it, it takes patience um, to, to do animation. But so you're slowing an event right down and then you can rewind it and then go back forwards again. So it's a bit like EMDR and, you know, there's an, and the other aspect it's kind of like it, it maybe enables the amygdala to communicate with the frontal lobes a bit more, you know, so there's two parts of the brain in operation. So there's the process and the event. And it's what Janina Fisher talks about in terms of dual awareness, which is you're, you might be animating like with Gary who animated finding his mum dead from a heroin overdose. Um, so he was in the process we're in a room with other with other um, participants, um, and there was an awful lot of banter. You know, he used humour as a lot as a way of sort of saying stable and and in the present moment. Um, and he was working really closely with me, um, and so he was very much in the here and now, but also animating a scene from his past which he, you know, afterwards we talked about that and he said he's never thought about that, he's never wanted to go there. But he was very clear that he wanted to animate that scene, which interested me in the first place, really. Um, so, and what was interesting um, was that he 
it was fine. He was didn't seem to be traumatized by it. And then the next week we did the voiceovers for that scene and he did the voiceover with a, a prison officer, a female prison officer who played his mum. And that seemed to have triggered him and he didn't come back for a few weeks. And he said, I, I was up very upset by that. So again, that was a mistake on my behalf. But um, So it, it's interesting. Yeah, I think it's something about, and it, it's, it, it's, it's a kind of bilateral um, process. You're working with the hands, the brain, the memory. It's, it's, you're working with all different parts of the brain. Thank you, Tony. Are there, are there many people practicing uh, therapy in this way? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. No, I mean, there was, when I first started doing this, there was an OT in Devon who'd had a kind of big grant from the Wellcome Trust and she was developing this work alongside me. I haven't heard from her for a long time, but um, I mean, I train quite a lot of people. Um, I do lots of training to arts therapists, not, you know, and other professionals and educators. And, and there's a few priory clinics that are, a kind of coin you know there's wanting to set up animation therapy i wouldn't call it animation therapy but so they're so they're so they're setting up animation therapy which i'm sort of in supervising um but there's not i say i've probably trained lots and lots and lots of people and and some people take that into their clinical practice but it's complicated it's it's, it's kind of it it's because you know particularly in prisons you can imagine taking all the equipment in and you know it's and it takes a lot of time and so it, it's a bit niche i'll have to admit <laughs> yeah i just i suppose i was wondering how easy it's been to 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 manage to get to work in a prison offering this kind of therapy it's really hard to do anything new in a prison environment so I kind of like bulk a bit thinking about the process of of overcoming all the all the barriers to change that are there in 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 a big bureaucracy. I, I think when commissioners have the idea and then they hand over the process to someone below them, I think those those people bulk at it as well. Oh God, um, it's quite a, it's quite a thing. Um, yeah. I think, well, it, it, I started off working in forensic, you know, in secure units in mental health. So, and at the Bracton, uh, so it was much easier. And Bracton at that time was quite relaxed about things like that. Um, and so that's how I started. And I, I, I mean, yeah, it's kind of, I must have, I thought it'd be a one-off thing and that would be that. Um, and that was like 12 years ago. So I've managed just to about keep going. It's got a feast or famine, but that's freelance for you. And I think, yeah, mostly it's people put off by the sort of the, the kind of the bureaucracy and the logistics. Um, but it's possible. And it, I've been in, I've lost count of the amount of prisons I've been in now in, in the southeast. Um, probably most prisons in the southeast, apart from my local one. Lewis, um, obviously. Uh, so it's complicated. 
um, I, I, I can't remember what the question was. I, say, I, was, um, really, I was just wondering about managing to overcome barriers to change. And I guess, you know, I think it's interesting that you've that it's mainly prisons in the same sort of cluster. So within that locality. So my guess is there's a trust between governors of of different prisons. So that once it's been in one place and of, often I think in prisons there's a competitiveness as well, isn't there? Something happens that works well in one prison and then the next prison wants a once a bite of the cherry as well but I you know moving on from it's got an enduring you've got a product at the end of it as well I don't like to call it a product and so they use the films for training prison officers and and various people and um because often people tell their stories um and it gives an insight and and yeah I don't, I don't think it's so much for therapeutic kind of value I think there is that therapeutic value um but it's the fact that it has a kind of public um, sort of face and, and there is a PR angle to it I think probably yeah and yeah I mean yeah Millfields in fact uh, commissioned me once you know there were there was going to be a international association of forensic psychotherapy conference and they wanted service user voice because obviously people in in locked facilities can't go to conferences in wherever it was in Belgium I think um, so that was one way of taking their voice, um, for instance, yeah. And it's it's quite challenging working in a prison anyway as a as a as somebody who's not directly employed by the prison service in terms of you can be viewed with a bit of suspicion if you don't work for the the prison service. Often um, principles and ethos cultural values into around work can be quite different working in a prison but I wondered you know I've fortunately I've mainly worked within quite a large team in prisons I wondered what it was like for you going in as a lone practitioner into a prison using a pretty novel therapy yeah it's challenging uh yeah it's it's I think yeah it's it's very lonely um and um it makes me very anxious uh, on many different levels. Um, in a way, the actual work itself is the most least, least anxiety provoking thing, but obviously I want the thing to work and there's some pressure for it, you know, um, to, you know, to get something in the end. And I think it's always, I was gonna say, you know, I always think it's a miracle that anyone a, asked me to go into prison to make this. It's a miracle. And it's a miracle of anyone, if anything comes of it, because there's so many barriers and um, things that get in the way and it's so unpredictable and chaotic and inflexible. Um, but it's, so I kind of go in on that level that it's, it's, it's a miracle. You know, if anything happens, it's a miracle. But as we know, that there's quite a lot of sort of magic, magic and miracles that happen in, in these in these very difficult places. Um, but there, it's difficult. I, the, you know, some places are easier than others. Put it this way, I, I, they really vary um, massively. I mean, I worked in a women's prison, and you know, not so long ago, say last beginning of the year, um, and was very much attached to the team it was an enhanced therapy service and it, it was and I was always working with a psychology assistant because I didn't have any keys so um and that was a very different experience but generally it's me kind of lugging my, all my equipment around through gates and you know just sort of 
wondering how I'm doing, going, you know, it's sort of, I'm very much on my own or, or working with a prison officer who have a different one every week and I don't know who they are and and there's no sense of trust or safety there. Um, so, yeah, and it's some sort of strange things have happened. I, once I got left, got left, I've forgotten about, basically. I look up in a, I was in a porter cabin somewhere, you know, surrounded by fences and the only way to draw attention to myself was to press the alarm button. Um, but that's that's an extreme. It doesn't didn't happen very often. But um, it's kind of it's not it's a sort of slightly nightmarish. That I, I've known that happened to um, a custodial manager. Actually, he got locked in our porter cabin, and there wasn't a working phone. So I don't know. How, I don't know how he actually managed to draw. I think maybe he used a radio or something. But I don't know how he drew attention to the fact he was there. But these things do happen. But that's that is kind of quite a nightmare scenario but I, I was wondering Tony how you how do you get clients for the work that you're doing do you set, are you looking for a, of a particular kind of situation or client to work with or do you just let the the prison just know that you're there and and you're at the mercy of who they send to you yeah good question um ideally what I'll go in before the project starts, I'll go to say a community meeting if they have them and say, I'm going to be doing this. Um, it, it, you're welcome to come along. You know, and I show some films if they've got any like television or something like that. I'll show some films from previous projects and, and just say, you know, you might want to tell a story. You might want to tell your story. You might want to make something up, um, but you can make a film about anything you want. Um, I don't like being given a theme by commissioners because it doesn't really work. Um, so that's ideally, that's the way it works. You know, but it's usually someone puts a sign up, like a little notice up and you can have to sign up for it. But that's hopeless because no one knows what the hell it is that I'm offering and it doesn't really work. And I usually have to gather people whilst I'm there and kind of have to talk people. I don't like persuading, or I don't use coercion in any way. Um, but, you know, it's, I did some work on a secure training center for, you know, for children's secure training center. And they sent us a whole load of people. I was working with someone else then, luckily. And none of that, none of them worked. It was like the people that go, oh, that's the person's interested. That never works. It's really, really interesting. It's always the most unlikely people, the people who you'd think would never do it they're the ones that do it. It's always a person who's like, the, you know, the kind of, oh, that person's a great artist, he'll love to do it. And he, I can guarantee they won't do it. And it's, and it's sort of the opposite. And there's someone who, you know, they're the, the biggest trouble on the, on the wing, you know, they're, they're about to be kind of whatever sent into seclusion. They're the ones that generally do it or, you know, it's the most unlikely people. So, you know, it, it's the sort of, um, it's sod's law a little bit and, and luck and <laughs> that's that's the nature of the beast i think really thank you and i understand that you're quite interested in concepts that come from things like sensory motor ways of working so the idea of incorporating the body more and and vagus nerve um theory can you can you say a little bit about how you make that relevant to your work yeah, well, I've talked a little bit about um, embodied narrative, you know, in the terms of 
and we know that trauma is often kind of felt and located, you know, um, somatically. Um, so it kind of makes sense um, that a, a way of telling stories through the body, you know, that kind of makes sense in terms of someone telling a different kind of story. I mean, I've got an example of um, a woman, a woman called Irene. She, this wasn't in a prison. Um, she was in a um, mental health setting um, and she'd been sexually abused by her father from the age of six um, for 10 years. And, um, and she, she told us, she told her story. She was very clear that she wanted to tell that story. And she made all of the puppets out of plasticine. And, um, and she sort of, she told her story with her hands. It was extraordinary. So the one bit where she's talking about the judge, where she, her father was prosecuted um, and, she, and she was cross-examined. And she told, she, talked, she told us about, this wasn't even when we were filming. Um, she was just saying, oh, the judge was such an amazing man. And she, while she was doing that, she was stroking his head, the puppet's head. And I filmed her doing that. And, and then when we, were, when we evaluated the, the project, you know, she was holding the puppet of her as a child. So we're kind of getting into parts work here as well, you know, the sort of the... So she's holding her puppet of herself as a child. And while she's talking about the process she's soothing the child you know the child of her um, so it's an internal family system kind of because she is a massive self-harmer um, so there's things like that bits of narrative she also you know had their parents she would stick knives into them so there was also an element of violence as well but you know she couldn't do that literally but she could do that you know somatically you know and and then for her, it wasn't a violent thing. It was, she was giving them back the scars that they gave her. Yeah, literal scars of self-harm. So she said, that's where they belong. So she was giving them back. And again, you, it doesn't work if you say it in words particularly, but it worked, you know, somatically. You know, I think, and there's lots of, I've talked about the dual awareness, you know, in terms of, um, the Janina Fisher sort of thinking about so someone's in the present moment but you know and very, and very much caught up in the process but also um, animating something from a very it's a traumatic scene from their past so they remain in the present sort of you know one foot in kind of the present one foot in the past and they're with me collaborate it's a collaborative process so you know I my role is to facilitate them so step back if they're fine and they're they're getting on with it and step in if they're struggling so it's a bit of a dance thank you and you you haven't only worked with people who are detained in hospitals or prisons you've also worked with refugees and i wonder what the similarities and differences are in working with this population um, as opposed to people who've come into contact with the criminal justice system I suppose one of the similarities is they're both hostile, you know, there's a sort of concept of hostile environment, um, which you see very, very, you see, well, a hostile environment, the, the term was coined um, in reference to, to refugees and, and asylum seekers. Um, but uh, as we both, as we all know, is that our prisons are 
also hostile environments. Um, so there's a sort of similarity, that's the similarity, and obviously, and obviously a lot of asylum seekers end up in detention centres, um, some ended up in Elmley prison, didn't they? Recently some unaccompanied minors ended up in Elmley prison. Um, so it, it's, 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 so there's a real crossover. Um, I think the kind of, but it's, a, it's very, very different. It feels so different, you know, it, it's a sort of, um, I think with asylum seekers and refugees that there feels to be much more resilience um, and not so much trauma. Although people, people are still, they're still in the sort of sympathetic sort of fight flight. I mean, we work in Art Refuge, we're working in, um, we're working with people who are still traveling. So they might be in Calais or Northern France or, or in camps in Kent or something like that. There's a waiting they're awaiting kind of asylum claims. Um, so they're very much in limbo. So they're not settled so much. But it's a very different, you know, and I think people that I've worked with in prison, you know, they're, they're settled in a funny, funny kind of a way. It's not quite the right word, is it? I'm stuck, maybe a better word. Um, you know, so in you know, polyvagal terms, more in dorsal. Um, sort of everything's a bit hopeless and, and a lot of people in the last project I worked with in Brixton were an IPP so very much stuck and in despair um, so but yeah I, I think I found that people in prison are much more are more in a place to, to explore their trauma and, and will make work about their trauma and about their experiences and, and wanting to do that um, but less so asylum seekers, but I think because they're still, it's still ongoing. They're not in a reflective space yet, but also there's not the, necessarily the early attachment wounds. The trauma is more recent. Thank you. What, Tony, why, why do you think you've gravitated towards working with such mar marginalised groups of people? Oh God, that's oh, a good question. I, I... I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've got some ideas and I'm really interested in why we end up doing the work that we do. Why, you know, I, when I first started doing art therapy, I had no idea I'd want to work in prisons. And I, you know, as I said, I'm not even sure I do, but I'm sort of fascinated by it and drawn to it and drawn to working with uh, people in exile, I suppose. They're both exiled. And I've sort of touched more at the beginning, um, my own early experiences, um, I suppose in terms of early family loss, um, sort of so sort of unresolved grief, um, but also um, being separated from my own family in in terms of being sent away to an, another hostile environment. You know, let's say boarding schools are hostile environments. Um, they're just very expensive hostile environments, um, and uh, sort of so in a way. The people I'm working with, there's a kind of, you know, there's a sort of level of understanding of, of the trauma, you know, um, and I don't have to think too hard about it. I don't. There's not. There's not a kind of imaginative leap. I'm kind of there in a funny kind of a way, and you know, again, abuse is rife in boarding schools, you know, and as it is in, you know, for people in prisons, but also for people, you know, before they've got to the prisons, and and. 
and in the system, since the asylum system is, is full of abuse. Um, so it's kind of, uh, I was going to say, it's, it's not comfortable in any way, um, but I know the territory. It's quite interesting to hear you refer to it as as boarding school as a hostile environment as well, because certainly we've, you know, we've had guests on Richard Beard, uh, Simon Partridge, um, Raphael Viola, Joanna Britton, Pierce Cross talking about boarding school. And that's certainly um, that sense of boarding school being a hostile environment. And also certainly I think Richard Beard talking about that being deliberately cultivated in order to, as if it was somehow going to create pupils who are resilient adults but of course actually ending up often being quite disconnected from, because it is such a harsh environment for a child to survive. It's brutalising and but it, it, you know in some people it teaches them to be brutal. Um, I've been doing some work in Myanmar not literally but online and um, apparently the sort of children of the military send their children to military boarding schools where they're systematically brutalized um, so that they learn how to become brutal themselves so it's not that different to our system really yeah and yet it sounds like you're offering it in a way that is therapeutic you know in terms of talking with us about your process and what you're doing and i'm wondering if some of that is about it's hard to do something novel because it's putting yourself out there isn't it to you know i suppose the thing with animation is you're not center of of the film that you're making your objects are but you know i'm wondering if there's a visibility and offering something that you know it sounds like it could be really therapeutic for some people I think, I, I've, I've, yeah, I've noticed, you know, and I think all the projects I do, do I don't call it therapy. I think it's therapeutic. It's, it's what I call art as therapy, but it's the, the emphasis is on the art uh, and the making of the film rather than the therapeutic relationship and the usual transfer and stuff. It's all there, but I'm not focusing on it so much like you would in a sort of normal psychotherapy it's different boundaries as well because I'm taking on a collaborative role. I'm facilitating and being collaborative. So bits of me will come into the, you know, in terms of the edit when I'm editing it, you know, because I, you know, I edit the films. So it's just, it's a different, there's different boundaries, I think. And it's, I haven't quite squared that with the, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a gray area as you, as you're hearing. Which I've never resolved. Sorry. Sorry, Tony. I just wanted to push you a bit more. I'm just wondering why you're not. You know, if if you can mentor, you're you you've got the skills in animation, and are trained as an art therapist, and and you're mentoring other people to to make use of it as art therapy. I suppose I'm just it does leave the question of why why aren't you? cut it out if you if you want you don't have to answer if you don't want to but it it just seems like you've got a talent that you're not using yeah that's a good question you are pushing me um and as i don't uh i think there might be some stuff from you know i, I kind of lack of confidence around that area in terms of 
I, I, I've never been that keen on doing private practice um, anyway, um, which sounds ridiculous and I'm willing to go into a prison or into a kind of, um, you know, there's something about having a buffer, you know, I, a, a sort of an institution. So it might be something to do with that. Um, but it, it's an interesting question and never say never, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm going to be thinking about this quite a lot. I think it's um, no one's ever pushed me on this one before. Interestingly enough, I think I'm working through something. I had a bad experience on some with private practice stuff, and and which actually involved film. And I there's a bit of me I think never again. So maybe that's that. Uh, um, there's also as you're as you're digging. Um, <laughs> There's also something about, I don't know whether to say this or not, but I'm going to, I'm going to anyway. There's also something about not calling it therapy, which seems to, if I went into a prison and said, right, we're going to be doing animation therapy, I would put off half the people who would come along. So you have two words that, well, art therapy is two words which are problematic, art and therapy um for a lot of people people can go don't like art we're always bad at art at school i don't want to go near therapy whereas if i go into prison say we're going to make a film and i will help you make a film and tell us any story that you want to tell um and people tend to t so it's slightly dishonest in a way isn't it because it i'm sort of drawing people in, in into telling stories that i if i was doing art therapy i don't think they would tell those stories so quickly i'm sure that's true but i but i do think there are also people and maybe more young younger people i think there's something quite cool about animation and actually i think that might allow pe people a way to opt into trying to engage with their stories in a in a positive way where my guess my guess is if you were offering it as a therapy people would people would come for that because the novelty of of that and the using a different medium would would I can imagine there'd be people for whom that would have massive appeal and make it feel viable to engage with their their own story in that way. I think yeah, well I, yeah, yeah, I hope so. I, I think you know there's also a bit of me think you know the more negative part of me thinks art therapy is niche and animation even more niche. It would it's just not exactly a great business model, but maybe it is. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tony. How do you look after yourself? How do you keep yourself well and in balance? So that's a, that's a, that's a good question. Um, well, it, it's a question I get asked a lot as well when, when they see some of the films that people make and some of the awful stories that get told. Um, I get asked this question. I've never come up with a very satisfactory answer. Or not a very, or never a very convincing answer. Um, I think the bits that I find really difficult bits I've already mentioned, which is the bureaucracy. It's the kind of intimidation of the institutions, which is what sends me into feeling very unsafe mm. and very insecure and frightened. Um, when someone's actually engaged in a project um, and is telling their story, however traumatic it might be. It is nearly always 
a hugely joyful experience. And and with Irene, who I mentioned before, it was one of the most meaningful, joyful experiences I've ever had. She, we, we, it was hilarious. She was such a character. You know, we used humour a lot. Um, and there's something about someone processing something and making sense of something and um, working, you know, it's sort of, it is a kind of alchemical process of, sort of turning something awful into something beautiful. Um, and that doesn't result for me in vicarious trauma. You know, as I say, the trauma for me comes in through the institutions, the anxiety of, of something doesn't work or if, or if someone does act out, you know, and that's again, loan working is scary. If it, it happens very rarely. Um, I think, you know, obviously I do the usual thing. I make my own work, I make my own films um, and, you know, using materials and using, you know, I think I started telling my own stories having worked with other people's stories. You know, I wasn't doing that consciously before that's been massively helpful for me and, and, and grounding and calming all the usual things, um, you know, sort of walks and dogs and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, supervision. Um, but I also think again, boarding school thing, and this isn't the healthy part of me here, but it's, I'm very good at sort of, uh, putting things in places where they don't hurt, you know, a dissociation. And um, so I don't, I mean, I was really interested to hear you, Naomi, talk about feeling and expressing emotion in prisons and, and, and training prison officers to express emotion. And um, I find that extraordinary and really hopeful. Um, I think for me, I'll, I'm quite open, but I'm not feeling emotional, particularly in terms of feeling sad or, you know, sometimes I do, you know, you know, I, sometimes it will come in, you know, particularly in the women's prison, I just, it, it was, sometimes it does something, yeah, something gets in sometimes. The, in the women's prison, it was, I was there with a the team and we go, oh my God, that was awful. That was really, really awful. You know, I worked with someone who was, forever in the isolation unit and there was so much sabotage going on in terms of her work with me um, and it was continuously awful but I had a whole team to process that with so I think it's it's usual stuff it's the you know if I can work with a team but it, it's when I'm on my own and that's difficult and it's supervision's difficult but supervision's difficult because no one really understands what I do and there's not many people who understand the process of it that well so I have to choose carefully. So that sort of answer, not as I say, not a very satisfactory answer, but it's the best I can do. Oh, that was great, Tony. I really enjoyed the conversation with you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much indeed. Very thoughtful. Yeah. Well, thank you for asking me. I was really, you know, delighted to be asked, and um, it's such an important podcast. Yeah.